victim was told, he should know that this man has done this to several other women, but they're too scared to testify against him. That can lead someone to say, well, God, he must be guilty, and I have to step up to the plate and help get him put in jail. And then that victim may testify against him, is saying, I saw him, I recognize him, I remember his face, that's definitely him. As opposed to, I believe he's guilty because the cops have led me to think that by telling me about all the other terrible things he did. But to be honest, I didn't see him well enough to say myself. This is Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. I'm Kira Milani. In September, I sat down with Sam Gross from the National Registry of Exonerations to discuss his latest report examining police and prosecutorial misconduct that contributed to wrongful convictions for serious crimes. So, could you tell me a bit about what you set out to accomplish with this study and who helped you make it happen? Since the inception of the National Register of Exonerations, which is over eight years ago, we've known that misconduct by government officials is a major cause of the wrongful convictions that we were seeing in cases of defendants who were later exonerated. And we wanted to gather more information about it to describe it in some detail, because all we we could say about the cases in general at that point was that there either was misconduct by law enforcement officials or that there wasn't. Getting detailed information on it was a huge project. It took us uh, over six years from the first exploratory project to try to figure out how to classify them through years of gathering and coding information to uh, analyzing and writing up the data that we obtained. And uh, along the way, we have the other three co-authors of the report, uh, Maurice Posley, who is a stellar journalist, Clara Stevens, who's now working as a public defender in Chicago, did a huge amount of work organizing this and working with many students. And, and uh, Caitlin Rowe, who was the research scholar who was involved in the initial process of gathering and coding the data that we're still using. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in addition, dozens of students, many people in other organizations. So it was a, uh, it was a huge, long project that required uh, uh, at least a village and possibly a village plus a whole bunch of other friends to complete. So when we talk about misconduct that you're discussing in your report, we're talking about misconduct committed by police officers, prosecutors, forensic analysts, and other uh, officials who contributed to false convictions. How prevalent is this kind of misconduct in cases of exonerations? It occurs in the majority of the cases, 54%. Mm. And police officers do it more often than anybody else. They committed misconduct that we know of in 34% of the cases, prosecutors just behind them in uh, 30%. Mm. Forensic analysts in 3% and child welfare workers in 2%. So, mm. um, But I should mention, a lot of these cases involve misconduct by more than one official. Those numbers add up to more than 100. Mm. Um, And there is, we are confident, a lot of misconduct that occurred in these cases that we don't know about because it's in the nature of misconduct that the people who do it conceal it. Mm. And we know about the cases where it was discovered despite efforts to conceal the fact of misconduct, but there were no doubt 
many others, even in these cases where we know that some misconduct happened, where it was successfully concealed. And what does this misconduct look like? And I understand that varies by what kind of official is committing it. But what are the most common forms that you looked into in this report? But the single most common form is concealing exculpatory evidence, evidence that uh, shows that the defendant or tends to show that the defendant was innocent or that undercuts the uh, evidence that was offered against the defendant. What we did in putting the study together was organize what are probably, you know, I don't know, dozens if not uh, hundreds of different types of behavior into several general categories that roughly track the chronology of a criminal case from uh, the initial investigation through conviction. Mm. And those categories are uh, first witness tampering. Mm. That means getting a witness to testify to things that the witness shouldn't testify to because the witness didn't see or hear uh, or know the things that the witness is testifying to. Uh, misconduct in interrogations of suspects, uh, that's uh, uh, either uh, violence or threats of violence or other impermissible misconduct in talking to a person who's suspected of a crime to get them to confess. That produces uh, false confessions, which occurred in about 13% of the cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fabricating evidence, that's where police in almost all cases, but some forensic scientists so forensic analysts make up evidence and say that this is what they saw, this is something that they themselves perceived and that uh, uh, helps prove or establishes the defendant is guilty. Uh, Concealing exculpatory evidence I already mentioned, uh, that has many varieties, but it comes in two basic types. One is concealing evidence that in itself directly suggests that the defendant is innocent. For example, evidence that someone else may have committed the crime or that the defendant uh, had an alibi Mm. uh, or that witnesses to the crime told the police officer, that's not him, that's not the person I saw. Mm. Uh, The other is evidence that undercuts the testimony of critical witnesses that the prosecution presents. For example, concealing evidence that a witness who testified that the defendant committed the crime was himself charged with the crime and got a deal with the prosecution uh, to be released immediately or soon as a result of his testimony. Mm. Uh, And and then finally, the last category is misconduct at trial, the last stage of uh, criminal process. It doesn't happen in all cases, first because that's not the only type of misconduct, but second because about uh, 20% of our cases are ones where there was no trial because the defendant pled guilty. Mm. Uh, That's actually true of something like 95% of felony convictions in the United States. Almost all people who are convicted of crimes uh, are offered uh, reduced sentences or reduced charges Mm. in plea bargains and plead guilty. Exonerations are overwhelmingly cases of people who went to trial. And uh, in many of those cases, uh, there was misconduct at trial, perjury by police officers, for example, or misconduct by prosecutors in presenting evidence or uh, in the way they in the way they argued the case, lying to the uh, court and so forth. Now, a large part of your report examines the relationship between misconduct and race. Can you tell me a bit about some of the patterns that you saw? The basic pattern 
which will surprise nobody, is that black uh, exonerees were more likely to be victims of misconduct by prosecutors and police than uh, white exonerees. But the overall difference across all cases is not very large, about 57% compared to 52%. It's much larger in two categories of crimes. In murder cases, the difference is 78% mm-hmm. of black exonerees were victims of misconduct, only 64% of white exonerees. If they were sentenced to death, the difference grows again mm-hmm. from uh, 78% to 87%, and the rate for black exonerees, the rate for white exonerees goes on up only a little from 64 to 68. Mm-hmm. And at the other end of the scale for felonies among the less serious crimes, among drug crimes, uh, black exonerees were victims of misconduct in 47% of the cases, uh, whites only in 22%. So it's uh, more than twice as often for uh, African Americans. Now, when we see, especially looking into drug crimes, when we said see such a huge gap, can that be attributed to racial profiling? Or is there a deeper level of misconduct going on past that point? Racial profiling itself is not something that we would have identified in this study because Mm -hmm. the type of misconduct that we're dealing with is uh, only one type of police misconduct. Mm -hmm. We're only interested in misconduct that results in the presentation of false evidence of guilt Mm -hmm. or distorts, hides, or or undermines uh, actual evidence of innocence. And uh, racial profiling is typically a type of misconduct, a type of racial discrimination that occurs at an earlier stage, the point at which officers choose who to investigate, who to follow, etc. So the the classical type of racial profiling, uh, what uh, is known or was known as driving while black, you're you're looking for uh, drugs on the highway and uh, you choose to stop uh, 10 times as many African-American drivers as white drivers, and then uh, by by one means or another search their cars, and if you find drugs, you arrest them, and naturally, you can arrest a lot, uh, many more black drivers than white drivers, Um, and then you will conclude from that that they're more likely to deal uh, or possess drugs than whites because those are most of the people you arrested because those are the most most of the people you stopped and searched in the first place. That's a very serious type of misconduct, but in itself it doesn't lead to false conclusions about the guilt of the defendants. Mm -hmm. It's a type type of discrimination that occurs earlier in the process. And uh, uh, this is uh, misconduct that occurs after that, after somebody has uh, uh, been suspected uh, or chosen as an object for investigation. It can be a variety of things. Uh, One of the most common would be witness tampering, Mm. uh, getting uh, suspects, other people who have drug charges against them to testify that this defendant uh, committed some type of drug crime in order to get a better deal on their own case. Mm. And things like that uh, uh, happen uh, much more frequently Mm. when the defendant is African-American. You do bring up uh, witness tampering, and I do want to talk about witness manipulation specifically. We've spoken with Jennifer Thompson, who was very famously um, a victim who gave a false identification, which led to a false conviction. 
And a lot of the times when we see victims giving that false ID, the finger gets pointed at them for when their uh, case results in a wrongful conviction. How could a witness be influenced to unknowingly give that tainted testimony? In a case like uh, Jennifer Thompson's, this was a sexual assault in which uh, uh, she identified an innocent man. And um, as you know, and he was ultimately exonerated by DNA and she did the extraordinary thing of seeking him out and uh, you no know, apologizing and becoming a lifelong friend mm-hmm. um, and working with him to help prevent things like this from happening in the future. That's a terrible tragedy and police officers can make it happen more frequently in two ways. The one you mentioned is make people typically sexual assault victims believe that the person they identify is the person they were assaulted by when they wouldn't otherwise be able to testify to that. So, for example, in one case, after failing to identify the defendant uh, two or three times, the victim was called down to the police station to see a lineup. And before the lineup happened, when she was uh, in the uh, in a waiting room, the police arranged to have the suspect, the person they uh, were uh, had arrested and were going to uh, hope to be able to charge with the crime, walk through the uh, reception area with two police officers on either side, mm-hmm. and then she sees him in a lineup. Now that sort of thing can make somebody believe that they saw that person at the time of the assault and uh, then testify to it and be convinced that they're right because they've been tricked into uh, uh, seeing that person as the person who did it by associating him with the police and uh, with guilt as a result of that earlier sighting. Mm-hmm. It's an obvious trick and it works quite well. The other thing that police officers can do is much more direct. So we know of one case at least in which the victim was told, you should know that this man has done this to several other women, but they're too scared to testify against him. Mm-hmm. That can lead someone to say, well, God, he must be guilty, and I have to step up to the plate and help get him put, uh, you know, put in jail, and then uh, that victim may testify against him, no doubt believing that he's guilty, but that's not the part that's important. The part that's important is saying, I saw him, I recognize him, I remember his face, that's definitely him. Mm. As opposed to, I believe he's guilty because the cops have led me to think that by telling me about all the other terrible things he did, but to be honest, I didn't see him well enough to say myself. Which is, and that situation where they get people to testify to things that they didn't actually see can occur in the simplest of manners. There are mm. cases in which the cops just say, could you please identify this guy? Mm. And the witnesses comply. Now, your report was released on September 15th, and that coincidentally is coming out now over the backdrop of a national conversation about police accountability. Um, this yep. week we saw the Breonna Taylor indictment where only one officer at the scene was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment. Now, obviously, your report only handles cases where police misconduct happens in false uh, convictions leading to exonerations. 
But even in these instances, do we see guilty police officers being held accountable for their actions? Not very often. Hmm. Uh, uh, if, it's, if it's any comfort, prosecutors who are uh, guilty of misconduct that leads to sending people, innocent people to prison are disciplined even less frequently, almost never. Mm. But police officers are rarely disciplined. And uh, in the cases that we know about, the cases that lead to exonerations, that doesn't happen in, uh, typically until years after the event. Mm. Uh, the average time from a conviction to an exoneration is over 10 years. And uh, from that to disciplining anybody might be another five or six years. So it, mm. if it happens, uh, and it usually doesn't, it's likely to be at the end of their career or after they've retired. Mm. Uh, but uh, mostly not at all. And were you able to see a pattern of guilty police who were not held accountable repeatedly committing misconduct in cases? Oh, yes. Uh, mm. But they don't account for the great majority of the cases we know about. But there probably are more of those than we uh, are aware of. Mm. So there are no particular clusters, both in cases in which officers were eventually disciplined, because if you do something that is bad enough, so it's discovered that you were responsible for 15 or 50 false convictions that result in exonerations, that raises the probability of some type of discipline uh, mm -hmm. a lot. But there are two types of cases where we know it's happened in, in a big way. One is uh, drug cases, the ones that are in the registry so far are all in Chicago, but there will be others uh, as time goes on because uh, we have a backlog to work on. Where a particular police officer, Ronald Watts, and officers, a sergeant officers working with him, had a program of basically extorting money from people in uh, the poor neighborhoods in Chicago who they said were dealing with drugs or just uh, wanted to get money from, and they told him, don't give us money for protection or uh, so we don't charge you with drug crimes. And if the people didn't, uh, then they'd uh, arrest them and plant drugs on them or simply arrest them. And when they show up at the uh, police station, take drugs out of their pocket and say, we seize those from uh, the defendant. Uh, there are 66 of those cases in the 2,400 cases that we studied for this report. I think there are about 11 or 12 more that have been added since then. Mm. And there, uh, we know of hundreds of similar cases around the country. Mm. Um, and um, then there was in Chicago also in the late 70s through the early 1990s, mm. a horrific period in which a group of police officers under the command of a officer who eventually became a commander, John Burge, mm. were systematically torturing uh, suspects in murder cases, all African-American men using all sorts of terrible means of torture, electric shock, you know, you know, you know beatings, threatening to kill them, and so forth. Um, that became a major scandal in Chicago, and Byrd himself was eventually sent to prison for several years for lying in a federal case. None of the other officers who worked with him have ever been disciplined, though. And there are others, but yes, there are, there are repeat players. Mm. Uh, repeat players who, who haven't been disciplined, Yes, I'm sure. But those are more likely to be cases that don't result in exonerations at all. Mm. Because, uh, and we're deeply aware of the fact that the exonerations we know about, the false convictions that we know about, those that would produce exonerations, 
mm-hmm. or a tiny proportion of all the cases in which people are convicted. Mm-hmm. What is it that fosters such a culture where things like this happen, where this can be such a huge problem within our criminal justice system? Well, I, I, should, to say, I should say something about the magnitude of the problem. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about all police officers or all prosecutors uh, or most of them or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these are the police and the prosecutors who worked on cases in which we know that innocent people were convicted of, of crimes. And in the great majority of the cases in which uh, they were convicted of violent crimes, about 40% of the total are murder cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the, the majority are murder uh, and sexual assault cases. Mm-hmm. So we have no doubt that there are many other false convictions that aren't in the registry. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't venture to guess how many more, but uh, no, but it's probably uh, more like hundreds of times more uh, as opposed to 10 times more. But still, that's a small minority. It will be a small minority of cases. Mm-hmm. We do not have an estimate of how common misconduct by police officers, prosecutors, and other law enforcement officials is across the board in all cases. But mm-hmm. in these cases, uh, and there is and probably the most important lesson that can be taken from the work of the registry is that false convictions occur on a regular basis mm-hmm. uh, and when they do, at least among serious crimes, misconduct by police and prosecutors usually has usually happened. And to get back to the issue you raised before, mm-hmm. when that happens, those responsible are very rarely held to account. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that as the frame for the problem, what makes that all happen? I think the main cause is just pervasive systemic patterns that make it easy to do things like this mm-hmm. and uh, get away with it. That this uh, system that tolerates quick, easy solutions to criminal investigations that doesn't look under the hood to see what know what really happened. A system that's deeply underfunded, which means that it's hard to conduct good investigations and good prosecutions. Mm-hmm. One thing that people can easily overlook is that misconduct, that a lot of the types of misconduct we're talking about are more than anything else, a way to deal with criminal investigations and prosecutions cheaply and mm-hmm. quickly instead of actually looking for witnesses and uh, uh, examining forensic evidence, uh, you just terrorize uh, suspects and in interrogations until somebody confesses and that's it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you don't do anything else. And uh, then you offer them a plea bargain that uh, somebody tells them is better than going to trial. And mm-hmm. uh, that's the end of the case. Nobody ever hears of it. And that's true in many respects. And then, of course, there are the big cases, the cases that conspicuous murders or in federal case, uh, crimes, uh, federal white-collar crimes, cases that actually make it to the newspapers, cases that have an effect on people's careers, where the impetus to get a conviction is very strong because if you fail to, it's embarrassing. You make it assigned to, you know, uh, push papers as opposed to try cases for the next few years. Mm-hmm. But if you succeed, it may help your career. It may, you may get a promotion. It may help your political career. Uh, and between the two, and internal pressure, the desire to make sure that uh, somebody whom you believe committed an outrageous crime is convicted, which 
leads people to say, well, we know he did it, but we don't have enough evidence, so we'll just make up the evidence. Mm. Uh, uh, all of those things do it, but I think actually the biggest ones are the work habits that become ingrained are ones in which the easy, cheap way of doing things is cutting corners and cheating, mm. and uh, nobody does anything to stop it. Well, on that note, my final question for you before we wrap this up is what reforms do you think can be made to the system that could prevent more innocent people from suffering from this misconduct? Well, the first thing I have to say about that is it's important to understand that it's not a single type of behavior. Mm. It's, no more, it's not um, a single thing any more than disease is a single thing and there's no single cure any more than there's a cure for illness. Mm. Uh, if you're talking about the range of things from you know, beating people up in interrogations to making misstatements and closing argument in front of a jury in open court, it's a huge difference in types of behavior and the things that might make a difference. But we discussed possible remedies, possible reforms that would improve this uh, in the report. And they range uh, from the most specific, which are basically general rules that would improve how evidence is collected and preserved and along the way prevent misconduct as well. So, for example, in interrogations, recording the interrogation, uh, especially on video, is obviously the best way to conduct an interrogation because then you know exactly what happened, what was said, why, how it sounded, etc., and it would be easier to evaluate it. It also will prevent uh, misconduct and certainly prevent any violence because nobody's going to do that on camera. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the type of misconduct that we were talking about before in uh, eyewitness identifications is unlikely to happen if the entire process of dealing with any eyewitness is uh, recorded on video. There are other things of that sort, sort of basic good procedures for collecting and preserving evidence that would prevent a lot of misconduct among their other benefits. Uh, at the far end, what would be necessary for other types of misconduct that, that can't be seen, mm. in particular concealing sculptory evidence or fabricating evidence, is a change the culture in which law enforcement officials operate, uh, the work culture, and that's a big deal. Getting there will be helped by having better resources and better supervision, and especially better leadership by the commanders and chief prosecutors who are in, uh, who are in charge. But uh, it's, a, it's a process that uh, uh, would take a lot of time. But it, but it has happened and could happen. We talked about one really important example. In the 1930s, beating people in interrogations in the United States was extremely common. Suspects who didn't confess uh, were very frequently beaten. And, th and there was a long-standing national campaign by people in law enforcement and in courts against this, that eventually, by the late 1960s or early 1970s, reduced the amount of violence and interrogation by a huge amount. It didn't get rid of all of it. The horrors in Chicago that I talked to you about occurred after that. Mm. But uh, it was by then rare, and since then has gone down to uh, much even, uh, even less common than it was in the 70s and 80s. The 90s in Chicago. Uh, something like that could happen for concealing sculptory evidence or witness tampering, but it won't be something that happens instantly and it would take 
a development of a type of professional culture that doesn't yet exist among American police and prosecutors. That was Sam Gross from the National Registry of Exonerations, joining me to discuss his recent report, Government Misconduct and Convicting the Innocent. This has been Community Dialogues with music courtesy of bensound.com. I'm Kira Milani. Thanks for listening in.